Crossstream Music presents Something Worth Suffering For The Ideas That Drive Crosstream Music by Andrew Bibb Read by the author Chapter 4 Confident Humility The whole secret of the practical success of Christendom lies in the Christian humility, however imperfectly fulfilled. For with the removal of all question of merit or payment, the soul is suddenly released for incredible voyages. G.K. Chesterton God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The Apostle James When David stood before King Saul, requesting his permission to fight the giant Goliath, no one would have accused him of being too humble. His first response to the threats of the Philistine giant was, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine, that he should defy the armies of the living God? Most people wrote off this young shepherd as naive and arrogant. Even his own brother thought him immature. God, on the other hand, liked what he heard. Saul, at first, reacted to David's attitude the same way as everyone else but he quickly realized that he was running out of options. This giant had issued an ultimatum that he could not ignore, and yet neither he nor any of his battle-hardened soldiers were willing to accept it. And now this young shepherd was giving him reason after reason why he, a veteran of no war but a conqueror of lions and bears, would be able to succeed where every other warrior was too afraid to even try. David realized that physical strength could not be the deciding factor in this contest. The real issue was endurance of faith. He did not try to convince Saul by giving him a resume full of exploits that he could have accomplished on his own. Instead, he picked out those incidents that were obvious examples of the providence of God. He did not argue that he could win because he was especially qualified. He told Saul, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. He gave God the credit, and Saul, having no other option, agreed to let him fight. Saul proceeded to tell David how to do what he himself was unwilling to try. David, after indulging the king for a while, realized that God gave him certain skills for a reason, and to try to fight in any way other than that which God had already trained him would be impractical. Again, David might have been accused of arrogance at rejecting the experienced king's advice. No one said anything about his insubordination, however, because no one wanted to take his place. Malcolm Gladwell notes that, in reality, David had the advantage from the start. He chose to use a ranged weapon that he had spent his whole life mastering against Goliath's close-range armament. He argues that Saul's misapprehension was misplaced because he did not appreciate that power can come in other forms as well, in breaking rules, in substituting speed and surprise for strength. This is indicative of the state of paralysis King Saul and his men were in. Their fear prevented them from conducting a tactical analysis of the situation and deciding on the most sensible course of action. David, seeing things from a standpoint of faith rather than fear, was able to make this practical assessment and act on it. The exchange between David and Goliath was one of insults, but the substance of their threats differed. Goliath emphasized his own martial prowess in every threat. 
Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air, and to the beasts of the field. David, on the other hand, did not focus on himself at all. You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. One can only imagine the pleasure that God feels when a person boasts in him like David did. He hovers on the edge of every moment of our lives, just waiting for the opportunity to prove our professions of faith to be well-placed. This is the highest form of worship, simple trust and complete reliance. Every time Goliath said I, David said he. Goliath beat his chest, but David's focus was on his mission and his God. Everyone knows what followed. David killed Goliath with a sling and a stone. I wonder if the Israelite soldiers looked at each other confused and thought, no one said we could just shoot the guy. Sometimes some creativity and a little bit of unconventional thinking is just what God uses to accomplish his will. David, in the process, won the hand of a princess and the manliest job in the nation, being made commander of all of Israel's men of war. David may have been viewed as cocky, but in reality, he was the humblest man in the nation of Israel, because humility involves having a realistic assessment of ourselves, our weaknesses, and strengths. Every other Israelite saw the giant in light of their own inabilities and shortcomings, but did not consider the advantage of having God on their side. David accepted the challenge because he had complete confidence that God had prepared him for this moment. David knew his proper place before God, with all of his strengths and weaknesses. If God had not come through, then David would have been humiliated and likely killed. But his lack of emphasis on self-preservation and willingness to stake all on the providence of God gives us an accurate picture of true humility. Confidence, like faith, requires an object. There is a difference between self-confidence and Christ-confidence. Self-confidence can only take us so far because we are, in and of ourselves, limited beings. Because of this, complete self-confidence is not merely a sin. Complete self-confidence is a weakness. But there is no limit to how far Christ's confidence can take us, because he, having conquered all there is to conquer, is all-powerful. Christ's confidence is the true definition of humility. As John G. Lake explained, Faith in Christ was designed to bring forth a race of men who were bold and strong and pure and good. The greatest and the strongest and the noblest is always the humblest. The noble race that Lake refers to is nothing like the fascist Ubermen, nor does it have anything to do with ethnicity. He echoes Paul's assertion, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Christ's confidence sometimes looks like self-confidence because he is not outside of the believer, floating in some ethereal realm, having left us to our own devices. He is within us, actively leading, guiding, and strengthening us. Paul refers to this truth 
as the divine secret and the mystery hidden for ages and generations, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Because we as believers are united with Christ, we cannot become more confident in him without seeming to become more confident in ourselves. We are one with him, so anything we invest into him, time, energy, and resources, is, in the long run, an investment into ourselves. Pride is a result of our becoming confident in ourselves apart from Jesus. It is an inflated view of ourselves, a false advertising campaign, promoting ourselves because we suspect that others won't accept who we really are. Pride is actually a lie about our own identity or achievements. To be proud is to live in a world propped up with falsehoods about ourselves, taking credit where credit isn't due. Pride is what caused the fall of mankind and every act of disobedience since. It is pretending we can do for ourselves what we are inherently incapable of. There is no challenge involved when it comes to sin. We can do that very proficiently on our own. It is living a life worth living that takes more strength than we inherently have. So sin and pride are allies, as are faith and humility. King Saul's inability to trust God did not begin with the fight against Goliath. He started down the slippery slope of self-reliance long before that, and he paid the price for it. He began his reign with much promise, at least outwardly, for there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. He should have been the ideal leader, strong, handsome, and charismatic. Yet Saul did not have the endurance of faith and humility that made David successful. While waging a war against the Philistines prior to the battle between David and Goliath, Saul found himself and his army surrounded and outnumbered by the Philistine army. The Israelites fled and hid themselves in caves and tombs. Saul started to panic, fearing that the overwhelming enemy force would destroy his army. In his state of fear, Saul made an unlawful sacrifice to God in an attempt to buy his favor. What he forgot was that God favors trust and obedience, not bribery. When the man who was supposed to make the sacrifice arrived, the prophet Samuel, Saul told him that he had been afraid of a Philistine attack and already made the sacrifice. Samuel informed Saul, that he had just inadvertently lost his throne, and that God had chosen someone else to rule, someone who would trust him wholly and completely. Fear is a precursor to sin. It is a product of pride because it removes God from the equation and only focuses on the self. By allowing him to be controlled by his fear rather than patient trust, Saul cut himself off from the provision and protection of God. By making a sacrifice out of fear for his life and his kingdom, he approached God as if he could be bought. But God wants to be relied upon, not bargained with. It may seem harsh that Saul lost the nation as a result of a mishandled sacrifice, but God would not, at this critical juncture in history, allow his nation to be led by a man who was unwilling to trust in his timing. Instead, he chose David, a man who had plenty of faults, but who never stopped depending on him, even amidst tremendous mistakes and shortcomings. When God made mankind, he designed us to boast and be proud. Whether boasting is right or wrong depends on its object. 
Our strength, peace, and fulfillment are to be found in Jesus alone and not in anything or anyone else. If we are not actively boasting in Jesus, it will be easy to fall into self-centered pride, in which case we focus on our own achievements and failures. Idleness gives self-centeredness room to work. That is why Paul in his writings can always be seen boasting in the love and power of God. He writes, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And, If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Active boasting in Jesus prevents self-centered pride. This is one of the many benefits of sincere worship, through which we permit ourselves to remember where our confidence should be placed. Worship to God as the one who deserves it is simply spiritual creatures getting in touch with reality. Just as genuine humility is rooted in reality, so is worship. This is hard for those who do not share the same confidence in Jesus to understand. Sometimes it makes them uncomfortable. This discomfort is often channeled into ridicule. When the Israelites heard David brag on God when he decided to face the giant, they were not able to see the God in whom he boasted. As sure as he was of God's promises and protection, others probably assumed that he was either arrogant or insane. When we live with confidence in Christ, whom others cannot see, our words and acts of faith may be misconstrued as self-righteous or egotistical. When we start living with strength and compassion that others cannot comprehend, taking risks that others are unwilling to take, they will often write us off as being ambitious, self-centered, or just crazy. Fortunately, that is not our problem. We should be willing to become insignificant in the eyes of men, if only to bring delight to our Father. Our part is to be sure that they are not correct about our own talents and capabilities being the source of our confidence. We must be willing to be honest with ourselves as to whether our confidence comes from our own abilities or from Christ, who gives and guides those abilities. It is for this reason, the assurance of the inward leading of Christ, that there is a special bond among those who are actively living by faith. We can try to explain how we sense his leading in the core of our being, and we can try to relate the experience of trusting him and seeing him work in our lives. But it is when we come into contact with others who have lived out faith for themselves that we experience true brotherhood and companionship. For further proof, just contrast the difference between the bored monotony of discussing God as abstract theory and the overwhelming excitement of those who relate to each other, personal stories of his love and providence. The Apostle Paul, a professional endurance athlete in the faith, compared faith to running a race or training for a fight. Because he was able to rely on Christ and persevere despite intense opposition, he developed a confidence that, although seen by some as superiority, was simply a result of his confidence in the love of God. Stephen, the first martyr for Jesus, also had such confidence that even at the moment of his execution, he glowed with an otherworldly radiance his accusers could not ignore. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. The reason that these men and women were able to endure intense opposition with such tenacity and confidence was not because of a high pain threshold or some gross inclination towards masochism. The reason they performed such amazing feats was because the love of Christ 
had become more real to them than any physical or emotional pain. The writer of Hebrews gives examples of Old Testament heroes who embraced the love of God as their ultimate reality, rather than subjecting themselves to the world's standard of what matters. For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains, and in dens and caves of the earth. True faith brings supernatural results, even if subtle in appearance. The more we learn to rely on Christ, the more evident this will become in our lives. When it comes to relating to others, we must never let the unfaithfulness of man become more real to us than the love of God. If we place all of our trust and confidence in a human being, we will always end up being disappointed at some point. No human is equipped to see to our entire well-being, no matter how loyal and loving they are. But as long as our confidence is in the love of God in Christ, which never fails, we are never without hope and a reason to press on through the present trial. We are also never without reason to forgive the one who has wronged us, because they are not the source of our confidence, Jesus is. Jonathan was an Israelite prince and the son of Saul, the first king of Israel. During his lifetime, the Philistines were constantly harassing the nation of Israel. On one occasion, the Israelite army of 600 men was preparing to fight a Philistine army that was encamped on the opposite side of a gorge. Jonathan, in what from the outside looks like a brash decision, decided to take on the Philistines by himself, with only his armor-bearer beside him. His mindset was that nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, by many or by few. Not only was Jonathan a man of intense faith, he was also a good judge of character. The armor-bearer he chose to accompany him responded to his outrageous plan by saying, Do all that is in your heart. I am with you, heart and soul. Jonathan decided that if the Philistines said, Wait up, we'll come to you, he would wait. If they said, Bring it on, Jonathan and his armor-bearer would do that. The Philistines chose the latter. Jonathan and his companion climbed down one side of the jagged, rocky, steep pass and right back up the other. At the top, driven by their faith, they pushed back the entire formation and killed 20 warriors, after which the entire Philistine army dissolved into chaos. They began to panic, ran around aimlessly, and even started attacking each other in the confusion. The rest of the Israelite army finally caught on and joined in the assault. Many Israelites came out to fight when the battle was going well for them, but there were only two men in the entire nation who were willing to take on the entire opposing army when there was no tangible assurance of victory. Instead of trying to strengthen his odds of success, 
Jonathan minimized his assets, taking with him only his weapon, his friend, and his faith. The faith of two men won the battle. It is this attitude of courageous and righteous aggression that is our heritage as those who rely on Christ. God often chooses the least competent and least likely individuals to accomplish the greatest works of faith. Paul writes, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God wants nothing less than our complete fulfillment, but he will not share the credit for getting us there. We, as his sons and daughters, are meant to be examples of his goodness to those we live among, but if it looks like we are accomplishing everything in our own strengths and abilities, then how will they see the need for Christ? When a Hebrew man named Gideon led an army of Israelites against the Midianites, who had occupied their land and were terrorizing them, God did not tell him that he had too few men to accomplish the mission. He told Gideon that he had too many, explaining, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. God had Gideon cut his fighting force down from 32,000 men to just 300. In yet another example of his supreme creativity, God used Gideon, 300 men, and some torches and trumpets to drive out the Midianites and reclaim the land for Israel. The man or woman of faith is never unwilling to at least try. What do we have to lose? Even if we fail, God always has a plan for us, regardless of our failures. In fact, he is more than able and willing to turn our supposed failures into our greatest successes. The only failure is when we quit relying on him. Our faith does not keep us from making mistakes, but it does prevent our being crushed by them. As long as we continue to take risks and step out of our comfort zone, God will, when it is time, open the right doors. The worst thing we can do is cover up or deny our failures. It is in being honest and open about our shortcomings that we find freedom from them. It is when we hit rock bottom and quit trying to look capable, instead choosing to be completely transparent with Christ, that we open ourselves up to receive his help. For these reasons, the most important attribute for one to have who wants to experience close intimacy with God is sincere humility. How can you rely on someone if you are not willing to be transparent with them? Honesty with God is about being willing to admit where you are lacking and acknowledge his willingness to help and develop you. John wrote, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Honesty should be easy for us. If God is all-knowing, then what is the point of trying to hide our weaknesses and insufficiencies from him? Yet we constantly find ourselves trying to impress God with impersonal prayer and forced worship, almost like we are doing some sort of rain dance so that he will think we are as good as we wish we were. But religious show is not what leads to intimacy with God. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God you will not despise. 
The willingness to simply be honest with God means so much more to him than any attempt at self-righteousness. If we will only be sincere with him, letting him in on even the nastiest aspects of our personalities, he will give us the strength and capability to grow into true righteousness. It is no wonder why Jesus spent much of his time with social outcasts. He clearly had no respect for the prevailing social distinctions, being quite willing to associate with stigmatized outsiders such as Samaritans, publicans, fallen women, beggars, and various other outcasts. It is sometimes astounding the kind of personal baggage he is willing to dig through just to find a kernel of humble, honest faith. Jesus knew that the development of faith would lead to moral development, and instead of focusing on the behavioral aspect, he focused on the root cause. He criticized the religious leaders of the day because he knew that even though they put on a good show, many of them were lacking in honest humility before God. Not long before Jesus' crucifixion, he was eating at the home of a Pharisee when a woman entered. This woman was possibly a prostitute, but was at least a sinner like the rest of us. She brought with her an alabaster flask of ointment, which cost roughly a year's wages for a laborer. She knelt down in front of Jesus and washed his feet with her tears. Then she dried them with her hair, which is how slaves would dry the feet of their masters. Finally, she poured the expensive ointment over them. Jesus' host thought, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Jesus, knowing his attitude, told him a story about two debtors who had their debts forgiven by the same creditor. One owed substantially more than the other, so Jesus asked which of the debtors would love the creditor more as a result of his forgiveness. The host replied that the one who had owed more would love the lender more. Jesus said he was right. Then, comparing the woman's treatment of him with that of the host, Jesus said that her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Finally, Jesus told the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Her humility, a product not of guilt, but simply of her honest appreciation of Jesus' forgiveness, was directly related to her faith in him. That faith and appreciation produced love and an eagerness to show that love in a tangible way. Jesus paints a picture of the ideal believer in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. The reason those whom Jesus refers to in this passage are blessed is that they, having nothing of consequence to offer of their own, are in the perfect position to rely upon him to be their provider. They cannot get what they need on their own, so they are forced to rely on him. This is the real beginning of faith, the realization of a deep-seated need that nothing else in this world can satisfy. This is why the poor and demoralized were so attracted to him while he was on the earth, while the religiously inclined, in large part, rejected him. The rich and religious denied their need for him because, for the moment, they could live life comfortably without him. But the prostitutes and thieves could not deny their need for a savior, 
This is why, when they encounter Jesus, they are eager to trade their broken lives and shattered dreams for the grace God offers them. Jesus told as much to the Pharisees, asserting, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him, and even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. A Christ-driven change in lifestyle does not happen outside of reliance upon him. The behavioral change is not a cause of faith, but the result. Jesus taught that the change in lifestyle comes after being made right with God, which is by faith and faith alone. So, faith both precedes and produces change. The result of the indwelling life of Christ through reliance upon him, the internal transformation, is the beginning of the external transformation. Dennis Rogers is on record as pound for pound the strongest man in the world. Despite being scrawny and weak in high school, he trained his way out of weakness into the arena of superhuman strength. Among other extreme feats, he has held back two T-34 Air Force propeller-driven planes from taking off. He bends nails, horseshoes, and iron bars. He has one-armed curled 98 pounds for 10 reps at a body weight of 148 pounds, and he gives Christ all of the credit. When asked what the greatest moment of his life was, Dennis replied, When I made Jesus Lord of my life, nothing can compare to the moment that I decided I was going to live for Jesus and walk in faith, depending on him for everything. What makes this man great is that, despite his success, he is still able to recognize the favor of God in all of his trials and victories. He has committed his life to helping others realize their God-given potential break through their weaknesses, and live the life of strength and courage which God has called us to. A favorite verse of people like Dennis is Proverbs 24.5. A wise man is full of strength, and a man of knowledge enhances his might. Reverence and humility to Christ, or the fear of the Lord, produces wisdom, which results in unprecedented growth of strength and the ability to help and defend others. This humility produces the kind of strength that does not consume the one who wields it, but rather provides direction for that strength and a reason to use it positively. Speaking through the Apostle Peter, God shows us that the goal of humility is not our degradation, but our exaltation. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. God, being the loving Father that He is, wants to see nothing less than our full and complete success, even our exaltation. He just does not want us trying to accomplish this on our own. He knows how badly we will screw it up. God is the only being in the universe who is able to exalt us to the heights that He wants us to be exalted. No man can do it for himself, so it is useless and self-destructive to try. Paul wrote that it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one who the Lord commends. The believer who takes his faith seriously does not only humble himself before God, but also puts aside his pride to be honest and ask for help from those God puts in his life for that very reason. 
the truth will set you free, and God rarely works apart from people. To truly rely on him is to rely on those he works through. That means we can not only be honest with him, we must be transparent and vulnerable with those we can trust. Stated another way, as much of the truth as I admit to God, myself, and those who can help me will set me free. Many a committed believer has sought counseling, advice, and other forms of help and been better able to live out the life of faith because of it. It is also important that we humble ourselves to those who God places in our lives to mentor and lead us. God has entrusted us to them for our own good, for the development of our faith, until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. These spiritual leaders contribute to the strengthening of the body of Christ so we can be more productive, effective, and aggressive in revealing his love to the world. At the same time, it is equally important that we be aware of those who masquerade themselves as spiritual authorities but are in their line of work purely out of selfish ambition, only desiring to strip us of our freedom in Christ and return us to a state of bondage. Paul, after revealing the mystery of the gospel to the church at Colossae, which is Christ in you, writes, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In other words, Every genuine spiritual leader keeps Christ central. One who claims to be, but focuses on everything but Christ, is putting up a smokescreen. The writers of the Torah's goal explain that Christ should take precedence even over traditions. Identity should not be based on deeds or traditions. Our identity as believers, Jews or Gentiles, must be rooted in Jesus himself. We are not saying that tradition is evil or undesirable, just that it must not become the primary focus or a stumbling block. Tradition can be wonderful as an added spice, but should never dominate our walk with the Lord. The author of Hebrews writes, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. To enter God's rest is to enter a state of complete reliance on Christ. This being the case, the first thing we should do every morning is give the rest of the day up to God. We should recognize that it is not all up to us, that we are responsible only to do our part and rely on Christ for the infinite number of things we cannot control. We go into the day determined to do our best, but in the end, all that really matters is that we rely on Christ and do what we can to serve others. The rest is for him to take care of. That is the power of humility. That is what Jesus meant when he told us to approach the kingdom of God as children. He said, I tell you the truth, unless you turn from your sins and become like little children, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. So anyone who becomes as humble as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Again, Jesus equates sin to self-sufficiency without him. During his final journey to Jerusalem to be crucified, 
Jesus sent out 72 followers to spread the message of the invasion of God's kingdom that he was facilitating. They returned to him thrilled that even the demons were subject to them in Jesus' name. Jesus affirmed their authority in him, but cautioned them not to rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Jesus recognized that the messengers could be easily distracted by what they were able to accomplish, opening the door for pride and a kind of self-centered, temporary satisfaction. He redirected their focus from what they were doing for him to what he was doing for them, restoring them to their heart's desire, reunion with the Father. In that same hour, Jesus excitedly expressed his gratitude to his Father, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Even Jesus, God incarnate, was overwhelmed with appreciation for God's paternal nature in that he does not expect those who come to him to be extraordinary in any way, but only humbly reliant upon him. It is easy to become so efficient and self-reliant, or mature, that we lose the ability to simply rest and trust in Christ. Our faith in Him, however, is the single most important aspect of our lives. The heavenly secret of self-forgetfulness is the secret of joy on earth, as well as in heaven. All other aspects of healthy spirituality spring from this act of humility, which is simply being willing to let Him take care of and lead us. It should be so easy, and yet we find ourselves in a constant battle to assure ourselves of the reality of God's provision. This fight of faith is nothing new. The writer of Hebrews refers to entering God's rest as labor or hard work. Every unseen force that is not on the side of God and every person who is influenced by these forces is actively engaged in trying to break our confidence in Christ. They know that as long as our faith is intact, we will never cease to experience the fullness of the love of God, and they loathe this fact. For example, a woman whose husband had openly taken a mistress wrote to C.S. Lewis asking for his advice. Lewis counseled, among other things, that the thing is to rely on God. The time will come when you will regard all this misery as a small price to pay for having been brought to the dependence. Meanwhile, don't I know? The trouble is that relying on God has to begin all over again, every day, as if nothing had yet been done. Our battle is not just one of morality, as that is secondary, it is one of trust. Contrary to how it may sound, a state of reliance upon Jesus is not stagnant. Our flesh, inherently selfish and negatively influenced by external forces, is adamant about having its own way. We can intellectually grasp that a perfect state of reliance upon Jesus brings peace and wholeness. However, it is not a state that is easily developed or maintained. This is why the Apostle Paul refers to our lives as believers as a fight of faith. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In a perfect state, with a perfect environment, and a perfect mind and body, this act of resting in Christ would seem only natural. But we, in our current condition, possess none of these. We exist at the center of a conflict, a war waged against our confession of faith. Once we adopt this confession as our own, 
and allow God to adopt us into his family, we become targets on a hit list. The only goal of the opposition is to make us forget and abandon the object of that confession and the resting place of our faith, Jesus. In my own experience, it is when I start to rest on my laurels that this opposition is most effective. When I am feeling accomplished, that I have made something of myself, that I have succeeded based on my own merit and not Christ's favor and that of others around me, that is when my faith relaxes and I begin to rest upon those things that are in my power to control. This pride is, I think, universal in this effect. We have already seen its destructive effect in Adam and Eve's fall. They rested on the word of the serpent and on the empowering effects of knowledge. It seems that every single example of sin in scripture echoes this. David and Bathsheba, Samson and Delilah, Ananias and Sapphira, Lucifer himself, whose arrogance was incompatible with the bliss of heaven. When we find our rest in objects of our own control, rather than Christ, we give ourselves room to slacken our commitment to him. We take liberties we otherwise would not because they do not apparently affect those objects we deem as necessary for rest. We allow ourselves to deviate from the guidance of the Father because we do not see it as immediately necessary. A good litmus test of the current state of our faith is the question, where do I find my rest? In the approval of others, physical fitness, financial security, professional achievements, food, coffee, tea, beer, or in Christ, in His will, in knowing Him and being known by Him. This test, when honestly applied, leaves no room for doubt as to where our faith lies and, while none of those other things are inherently wrong, when they become the basis of our rest, there is really no rest at all. There is only coping. No matter how much we work, how hard we try, or how extreme the measures that we take, we can never find fulfillment on our own. Just as life is a gift and we did nothing to deserve it, so is finding our purpose for existing. There is no way for us to earn it. It can only be given by the source of life, by life himself. It is through reliance upon Christ, from whom all life flows, that we can connect to the force by which everything has its existence. The very force that created and sustains the galaxies resides in us by faith. The life of God is to be received freely, not worked for. The life that Christ has to offer us, he wants to convey to us without having to be bought. Any attempt to earn this gift is an act of pride and self-reliance on our part. On the other hand, it is impossible to receive such a gift without being changed by it. The most barren wasteland of a soul can be revived into a lush, fruit-bearing garden when flooded with the life of Christ. Our obedience grows not out of hope of acceptance, but appreciation for forgiveness. At the end of the day, both pride and insecurity are products of our innate desire to matter. We want to know that we are missed when we are not around and appreciated when we are. We want to be seen as special and unique. This, like so many others, is a good desire that can easily be misplaced. When we base our self-worth on the opinions of mortal, finite people, we set ourselves up for disappointment. We put ourselves in a position of perpetual competition because we feel that if someone else matters, then it makes me matter less. But that assumes that there is no divine love 
that can at once infinitely care for the whole of humanity and me as an individual all at once. If there were not, then where did the desire to matter in such a way come from in the first place? More directly, why would the restoration of humanity to God's family through Christ, the only mattering that matters, even be necessary? We have already seen how, barring the unfounded presupposition that miracles are impossible, Jesus' death and resurrection is the best explanation for the events surrounding the rise of Christianity. Why should we then doubt that our desire to matter was given to us by the same one who gave us Christ as its solution? To truly experience how much we matter to God, we have to be willing to give Him everything we are. It is an all-or-nothing deal. He does not appreciate half-hearted shows of piety, and nowhere in Scripture does He employ sentimental cop-outs like, You're perfect just the way you are. He, more than anyone, knows we are not. Dr. Metzger explains, Far from tolerating and enduring us, far from telling us what we want to hear, he told us what we need to hear. We are deeply loved, we are deeply messed up, and he has gone to the greatest lengths imaginable to win our hearts. He is interested not simply in our minds, obedience, and pocketbooks, but in every part of us, just as he has given all of his triune self to us, as Jesus and the Spirit are poured out into the world. God, who is infinite generosity, gave us everything when he gave us Christ. There is no good reason not to give him everything we have and everything we are in return. Thank you for listening to Something Worth Suffering For, the ideas that drive cross-tree music. For free cross-tree music and other content, visit crosstreemusic.com.